COVID-19 has had a huge impact on the world of work, with millions of people forced out of their jobs and lasting changes to the way all of us work. It's going to probably be a 60-40 hybrid of people working from home and in the office. We expect 60% of their time to be in the office, 40 probably from home. On this week's Radio Davos, what will be the lasting scars of COVID on workers around the world? Internationally, women have lost one or two years of progress in terms of their ability to participate fully in the workforce. We'll hear insights from the recent Jobs Reset Summit, which looked at the changes needed in employment and education. Many systems are locked in a mindset that education is a race, that children have to run through a set of predetermined hurdles that are positioned at very inflexible timelines. And we really believe that education needs to be recalibrated as a lifelong journey. Every week, Radio Davos looks at the biggest problems and how we might solve them. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and please share it with your friends. Leave us a rating and a review and join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy, podcast editor at the World Economic Forum. And with a look at the world of work post-COVID-19, with a particular focus on the future for women in the workplace. I figure this gap probably wasn't all just about babies. I thought, oh, there's got to be more to it than that. This is Radio Davos. We're talking jobs on Radio Davos today, looking back on the Jobs Reset Summit, which brought together more than 500 leaders from government, business and civil society. And to help me sift through some of their best insights about the future of jobs in a post-COVID world, I'm joined by journalist, teacher and podcast host, Ashley Milne-Tite, creator and presenter of The Broad Experience podcast, which for the last nine years has been delving into the experiences of women in the workplace. She works in the UK and the US and joins me today from London. Ashley, tell us more about The Broad Experience. Back in 2012, I started The Broad Experience and the tagline is the conversation about women, the workplace and success. So I'd been working for a business show in New York, and my favorite stories had always had something to do with sort of the cultural aspects of the workplace. And also, you know, I ended up doing quite a few stories about women and personal finance and women in the workplace. And I realized that there was this gap. Women do very, very well in school and university, but they don't reach the same heights at all once they get into the workplace. And I was really fascinated by that. And I figured it probably wasn't all just about babies. And I thought, oh, there's got to be more to it than that. So I started doing a lot of research before I launched the show. And yeah, I launched it to talk about some of the invisible currents running beneath women's lives that lead to their various experiences in the workplace. Right. So on this episode, we'll be looking about jobs, but we'll have a particular focus on women in the workplace. Of course, this was a big issue at the Jobs Reset Summit. Let's start by playing a couple of clips. Firstly, this is Guy Ryder, who's the head of the International Labour Organization. We reckon the world will still be down by about 23 uh, million jobs. So this is a very grave crisis. Guy Ryder of the International Labour Organization. And this is Alan Blue, co-founder of LinkedIn, talking about the impact specifically of the pandemic on women. Internationally, women have lost one or two years of progress in terms of their ability to participate fully in the workforce. We know for sure the pandemic hit women much harder than it did men. Secondly, the pandemic is receding unevenly around the world. And that unevenness, unfortunately, is going to very substantially uh, increase inequity globally. If we recover at 6.5% 6. 6. in the United States, 
while Africa is beset by the virus for two more years. That's a huge amount of potential lost ground. Alan Blue, Vice President Product Management and co-founder at LinkedIn. Ashley, what's your feeling about the impact of the pandemic on women in the workplace? It's been profound, certainly. I mean, obviously, the the numbers bear it out. And I'm not going to lie. I mean, most of the conversations I've had around this have been quite depressing. You know, a a lot of women in professional roles have felt their world's somewhat crumble around them as so many of them do have children. Now, of course, not all working women have children, but even so, the vast majority of women do have at least one child. And the bulk of the home part of what's become our work lives does seem to have become their job more than their male partners if they have one. So that's been huge, just the whole business of balancing everything that's been going on and being able to keep up their job and career. And then obviously, if you are in the, a different socioeconomic bracket, if you're, say, an, you know, an essential worker, then your choices have been fewer because you're not going to have the chance to work at home. And often something has had to give in that somebody has had to be at home with children because perhaps your backup that you had was parents or somebody older in your family who helped to care for your kids when you didn't. And that's just gone belly up for many people in many parts of the world. So it has been pretty devastating overall, I would say. I wish I could say something a bit more cheery, but I think that's the truth of it. Well, I wonder if the cheery side is that everyone's more aware now than they were a year or two ago of those particular difficulties that women seem to face much more than men. You're right. And of course, there have been loads of men who have either been you know, completely equal partners or perhaps they were the lead child parent anyway. And everyone's been in the same boat. So yeah, I do think that you're right, that that is an upside to this, that everyone has become so much more aware of what it means to be working often at home with your offspring in the same space. And maybe they're not even in school yet, but if they are, that pressure of, of trying to keep them focused on what they're supposed to be doing online, you know, say different families have had ver- varying success with that. But yeah, you're right. I do think going forward, there is going to be, there has to be a different perspective as different parts of the world obviously move out of the pandemic at different rates, that things just can't flip back to the way they were before. Well, on that subject, let's hear another clip from the Jobs Reset Summit. This is Wendy Clark, who's the CEO of Dentsu International, talking about how the virtual side of work for people who can work virtually needs to be made to work for women. We've already announced to our workforce that we will always from here on out have a hybrid way of working. So I think you've got to own now that the change is made, that it's permanent, and that it's on us to ensure that our offices are all equipped for a a sense of equal participation, equal presence, and equal opportunity in the work environment, even if you're coming in virtually. You know, that's going to be a challenge. It's not one that we can't surmount, but You can kind of imagine now a year from now, people saying, well, I might have got that promotion if I was there physically, you didn't accommodate me virtually. So we really, really have to have the rigor of going through all of our policies, practices and saying, is there equity of access? 
Wendy Clark of Dentsu, which is a multinational media and digital marketing communications company. You were mentioning there, Ashley, that um, for a lot of women, a lot of people in general, working from home is just not an option. But for those for whom it is, is there in some ways a benefit for women of working from home? Or is there a danger that actually they're just going to end up under more pressure with also all the, the home pressures they have as well? There has been a certain sort of gift of freedom for some people in having this ability to work from home. But I think it depends because if your day without the commute has been overtaken with trying to manage children in your household and manage their education. Obviously, hopefully that's going away. So say that the kids are back at school. I think probably a lot of women and men would, would enjoy having the ability to work at home some, that flexibility, which has been the sort of the holy grail for a lot of people for years. And they felt that it wasn't really part of their company culture. The flip side of that, of course, is are the people who are at home more than, they're, more than they are in the office going to sort of become relegated to second-rate status and miss out on opportunities. And that's going to have to be something that companies think about. And I actually know somebody, a guy who, he works for a big financial services firm in the US, and his office is a campus type of office, so outside of a major city. And he told me recently that they've been told they are coming back to work three days a week in the autumn, two days at home. And the interesting part of that is, you can go to the office on a Monday or a Friday, which are the off days, if you want to. But the one rule is, if there's a meeting on that Monday and Friday, even if you're there in person and the, uh, somebody else is there in person, you cannot meet in person. It has to be equal with everyone who's at home. You all have to attend virtually, which I thought was interesting that the company had thought about that and was trying to make it fair. You know, they were thinking about these potential issues that might crop up. Well, let's listen again to Wendy Clark of Dentsu International. And this is her forecast of what she thinks will remain in place after the pandemic in terms of homework. It's going to probably be a 60-40 hybrid uh, of people working from home and in the office. We expect 60% of their time to be in the office, 40 probably from home. And by the way, we say home and work. I actually think there's also a third place. I think people in this pandemic have established other places where they know that they're really productive. So it might not be their home, but it might be a third place. And again, just knowing that they can get into the zone, be in their productive state, be in their best place where they can do their best work uh, and live a, a life that's integrated with their work, that, that's the ambition. So I think the most important thing we can do is announce, claim, uh, and own it with our people so that it is out there and there's no way to, to kind of go back to that old normal as, as has been referenced. Wendy Clark of Dentsu mentioning there, so there's working at work, there's working at home, and then a third place. So she doesn't actually say what she means by that, but maybe a nice cafe or a pub or go and sit in the park. Ashley, is that, do you have a third place to work at? I used to. You know, several years ago, shared workspaces came in, right? These co-working spaces where you paid a membership fee every month and you could go, depending on how much you paid, every day, all day or a certain number of days per week. And there were other humans there to make you feel less alone. And I think that's something I have definitely missed about the pandemic. So I 
it would be great if there could be more of those places in more parts of the world. I think, I mean, unfortunately, the one I used to use in New York City actually shut down during the pandemic. They couldn't keep going financially. And it's obviously what, what's been happening over the last 15 months has been terrible for shared anything because suddenly we're all afraid of being around each other. But I think there's great potential for those places to come back. And as as more people are, you know, given permission to work from home, and in fact, organizations say, you're, you're only coming in two to three days a week, you are working at home from the other two days, there's going to be a real demand for those sorts of places. And I have to say, as a word for people who aren't in couples, people who live alone, we don't often hear about those people in these discussions of work and home. And it can be incredibly lonely spending five days a week working from home, you know, during these extended lockdowns and, and not seeing people for such long periods. But I think this is something that gets left out of the broader conversation about the, the workplace and the move to partial home working is people who really rely on the office as part of their exposure to other people, their social life, their company. It's a really good point. I think people living on their own are often forgotten in these conversations. I remember as a young journalist, I was working from home when I first arrived in Brussels to cover the European Union. And I found it very difficult, actually, you know, in a small flat, it's where you're sleeping, eating and working. You never leave there. And then I started renting a room in a shared office of the, of the type I suppose you're talking about there. Maybe that's a growth area. I'm sure there's a big market for that in a lot of cities, particularly places where people live in very small cramped conditions. I want to play this clip from Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. She's a Nobel Prize winner, Nobel Peace Prize winner, former president of Liberia. She was talking not about the place of women, but of a, about multinational companies' attitudes to racial minorities or to black people. Let's hear from her. We commend a decision by the Fortune 1000 companies to make a public statement on racial justice and to announce a commitment to address racial disparities and make changes in products and services, it's a great thing. But the record of commitment to cash and by extension to results is generally poor. Perhaps even more so where corporate financing with focus on return is at stake. If companies are to achieve the stated objectives, as put in the commitments, if you are to narrow the gap between intention and progress, there needs to be a reframing in the possibilities for change. Equity financing for our young Black entrepreneurs will make a difference. Traditionally, philanthropy and social corporate responsibilities have been investments that respond to immediate needs through methods relatively easy to implement. Too often, these include short-term things like scholarships, donating material goods during hard times, funding activities of pre-existing operations. What is needed is a renewed focus on human capital. Promoting technological capacity and empowering access to technology in black and disadvantaged communities. 
Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the former president of Liberia, seems to be raising the point that people pay a lot of lip service to doing good. Companies say, oh yes, we will bear in mind the racial disparities, gender gap, this, that, and the other, but they're not actually walking the walk. Have you found that in your work, Ashley, that there's a lot of companies trying to seem like they're doing the right thing? Yes, there is. And I I certainly, over the years, have interviewed a lot of women who have complained about this, whether it's to do with women specifically or women of colour. I caught up with somebody recently just on the phone, a woman I've interviewed a few times for my show over the years, and she's a, a black woman in the US and her career was in advertising, which is a very white industry. She has been skeptical over the last few years that companies in her industry were really doing anything, just lip service, right? But she did say to me the other week that last summer, after the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, she really felt that it was an inflection point. She has become a consultant. So she's in this diversity, equity and inclusion space. And she said, I really am truly myself now when I talk to these companies. I'm not covering up anything. I am being brutally honest. And they actually are paying for our services. And they seem they're they're genuinely listening to me. Um, And so she is more hopeful than I have heard her in the past. Really interesting. I'd like to talk to you more about your podcast. Uh, First, we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Radio Davos, and we're talking about the Jobs Reset Summit with Ashley Milne-Tite. We'll be right back. Audrey Choi is the Chief Sustainability Officer at Morgan Stanley. It's a role she helped invent, pitching the creation of a special investment group that harnessed capital markets to protect the environment. Where can we leverage the business by doing what we do as a business to advance these broader goals? She pitched this idea in 2008, and she talked to Meet the Leader about kicking this off at the start of the last recession and how finance can address the biggest challenges of any era. She also talked about her unique background, one that includes time as a Wall Street Journal reporter and work in policy for the Clinton administration, Al Gore and Janet Yellen. She'll tell us why diverse backgrounds are an asset in tackling sustainability and how each one of us can be a leader regardless of our types. What your value is, is what new perspective do you bring? And how can you think about doing something different? Learn about all this and more on the next Meet the Leader. You're listening to Radio Davos. I'm talking to Ashley Milne-Tite about jobs and the Jobs Reset Summit. Ashley, tell us something more about The Broad Experience, which is your podcast about women in the workplace. What are the episodes you've put out where you know you've really touched a nerve? You know, I've been doing it for nine years now, unbelievably. So... There are so many different ones. I mean, years ago, I did a show that was partially in response to Sheryl Sandberg's famous book, Lean In, which is really more about the individual woman changing herself to to get ahead, right? You know, you need to ask for money. You need to be less retiring. You need to put your hand up. You need to not decide that you're going to leave the company even before you get pregnant. And I, I interviewed somebody who said, oh, stop fixing women, start fixing companies. And that episode definitely resonated with a lot of women who said, you know, I've been leaning in for years, but I'm in a structure that isn't that friendly toward women. So it doesn't matter how often I put my hand up, there are always going to be these these structural barriers that impede me from getting to a certain point. But I think most of the women who listen to my show and who have contributed to it, it's more the subtle stuff. 
that still affects your trajectory. Right. And I wonder how easy it is to lean in on a Zoom call as well. Although I've heard there is the theory that actually it's a bit more egalitarian having a Zoom call, that it's harder to be the shouty man, mansplaining his way through a meeting. So let's listen to a few more clips from the Jobs Reset Summit. I wanted to particularly see if that summit highlighted any potential long-term impacts, things that are really going to change post-pandemic in the workplace. Let's hear again from Guy Ryder, head of the International Labour Organization. We all know that anything we learnt uh, at school or college doesn't last a lifetime. Remember how well-educated we were at the beginning of a working life, it ain't going to outlast any of us for a lifetime. All the evidence shows that those in general who have skills are much better placed to acquire new skills in the course of a professional life. Guy Ryder of the International Labour Organization. And while we're on that subject, let's hear from John Goodwin, who's the CEO of the Lego Foundation. The Lego Foundation, we really believe that the purpose of education needs to be realigned to the future needs of agile and adaptive citizens. And the central pillar of this is reimagining the education systems to develop a real love of learning. Uh, many systems that we've encountered uh, within the foundation that are locked in a mindset that education is all about a race, that children have to run through a set of predetermined hurdles that are positioned at uh, very inflexible timelines. Uh, and we really believe that education needs to be recalibrated as a lifelong journey and in order to do this, systems need to be redesigned to develop a love of learning, making education much more relevant and meaningful so that the youth and adults become more energized and engaged about learning. Uh, indeed, uh, you know, research has shown that a love of learning was one of only two characteristics that were independent positive indicators of well-being in adults from 18 to 71 years of age. So those who love learning are adaptive and flexible, and that's good for society and good for the economy and ensures future reskilling is much more effective and impactful. And you know, we've really seen the need of that through uh, the recent pandemic. And as WEF research has indeed shown that reskilling multiple times is going to be the norm as people will have to change career paths many times in the future as they flex and pivot. Uh, so there's a growing realization that we all need this ability to reskill and upskill and be adaptive. And uh, given that the cost of this reskilling is gonna be paid for by governments and by businesses, I think there's a really robust economic case for Education 4.0. So I'm very excited that WEF is putting their energies behind it. I believe that a diversity of perspectives is going to be needed in order to solve this wicked problem. And that's why uh, public-private partnerships and collaboration can be transformational, I think, in this education problem. John Goodwin of the Lego Foundation. Ashley, lifelong learning skills. I mean, I started podcasting quite recently. I'm not a veteran of 10 years like you are. That's a skill I've learned, and apparently lots of other people have in lockdown. Is this a new thing that we all need to reskill? I mean, the idea that what you learned at school is not going to last you a lifetime. It doesn't really surprise me, but do you think that's an increasingly important thing for people to bear in mind? Definitely. I mean, when I think back to what I learned in school, I don't know how much of it, honestly, is relevant to my life now. I really don't know. I, I happen to love learning. So I think that would be absolutely fantastic if more of us had access to learning throughout our careers. And you know, maybe it would help 
as we age, frankly, because you know, there are a lot of people who will tell you that they would have liked to finish out their careers, but they would say ageism showed them the door before they were ready to go. But I think if we were all learning and improving ourselves and upping our knowledge on new things throughout, there would be less chance of that happening, right? And maybe even in companies, I mean, actually, I was speaking to another source recently who mentioned that she was dealing with uh, a woman within a company and talking to her about a job application and the ridiculous expectations on this young candidate they were looking for. And she said that the HR woman was really surprised when I told her, it is your job to provide skills and training for people when they come into your company and throughout their careers. She said it really struck her quite forcibly and it's not something that this company had thought about. There were a lot of interesting speakers at the Jobs Reset Summit. One of them was a historian. So this is a bit left field, this next soundbite, but um, he's talking about how a big historic shock can actually make big social changes happen. This is Adam Tooze of Columbia University. The most fundamental difference is the power balance. It isn't at the level of ideas. It's not at the level of the influence of some brilliant economists like Keynes. It's not even at the level necessarily of the attitudes of business, which go through phases of greater and lesser degrees of enlightenment. It's really fundamentally about the question of who has power in society and what made the 1930s and 40s transformational as the balance of power had shifted. Organized labor had voice, it had leverage, and situations like total war gave it even more leverage. It's not the war per se, it's not the fact that there's a big challenge or a notable enemy that creates the conditions for more egalitarian politics. It's that that happens at a time when there's a countervailing force that can say to prevailing elites, well, if you want us to be part of the bargain, then we would like these conditions. Adam Tuza of Columbia University. He's a historian. I mean, we've not been through a war, but in many ways, warlike situation in terms of the money that's being spent, the social changes. So potentially COVID will have these kinds of impacts. Let me play another clip. This is Mariana Matsukatu, who's an economist at University College London. She's talking about how the subsidies and all the public debt that many countries are getting into to relaunch their economies and to save jobs, how that in some countries is being made conditional on the economies working better and how that should remain in the long term. Outcomes-based budgeting. First, ask ourselves, what needs to be done? What does it mean to tackle climate change with the same level of seriousness that we tackle wars? Uh, you know, to do it because it's hard, not because it's easy. You know, Kennedy's a big point. But what does it actually mean, for example, to forge these symbiotic partnerships by, for example, creating conditionality? So instead of just having this kind of, you know, raining down of subsidies, guarantees, and bailouts, what would it look like if every penny that, say, government gave to different types of sectors that are important in the economy came with certain types of conditions attached that really allowed us then to always build forwards better, right? Not just after a crisis. The economist Mariana Mazzucato talking about how subsidies need to be made conditional to promote environmental protection or things like we were talking about, gender disparities or racial disparities. Ashley, let me play you another clip here. And this is a less optimistic long-term possible consequence of COVID. 
This is Rajiv J. Shah, president of the Rockefeller Foundation. We are looking at potentially a decade of a great divergence where nations that have had high levels of access to vaccines and immunizations and have had the ability to invest 20 or 30 percent of GDP in recovery and stimulus uh, in a manner that is fiscally uh, manageable have been able to and will be able to imagine a fairly rapid economic recovery over the course of the next months and years. Uh, and at the same time, as we've seen from estimates from the IMF in particular, but also the World Bank, the nations that are lower income around the world that house potentially four or five billion people uh, have simply not been able to do that. Rajiv J. Shah of the Rockefeller Foundation talking about a great divergence. This is the K-shaped recovery where some people are going to have a good post-COVID and other people, things are just going to get worse because they won't be vaccinated in certain parts of the world. They won't be benefiting from fiscal stimulus. This is a risk. I mean, globally, there will be these disparities. But do you think they'll also exist within countries such as the US, where some people now they're set for great recovery? Is there a risk? There is a kind of an underclass that's going to be left behind. I do think so, given what the state of inequality in the US has been. I think it's entirely possible. I'd love to think that that wouldn't happen, that actually this could be more the, the flip side, a sort of um, diving board, right, to lead to something a lot better than has been until now, as the US is, you know, it's just kind of starting to climb and recover. But I think it's a little bit too early to know what's going to happen with everybody else. You know, I know that the Biden administration wants there to be a great deal more equality than there has been. But um, I mean, right now, there are still loads of people out of work. There are lots of businesses looking for work. There's this dearth of workers. So there are these questions about what's going on with that. Is it because those people are unable to come out because they have family members dependent on them. They're all still in a sort of COVID state of mind. It doesn't feel safe. Of course, you know, there are many, many people in the US who don't, they don't want to get vaccinated. It's not that they're not worried about the disease. They are vaccine hesitant. And if that's you, it's not going to make you, you know, ru rush into a job. So there's a lot that is going to unfold, I think, in the coming months in the US. And yeah, absolutely. I do think there is a danger that that inequality may continue rather than improve. Although I'd love to think that this could be a, a pivot point where it did improve. I think in a year from now, we'll have a much clearer idea of what the long term impacts of COVID will have been. And certainly that work from home situation. Yeah, I was going to say we, we should uh, talk again in six months or a year and see, see what's happened in the interim. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Ashley, uh, tell our listeners where they can find you and where they can find your podcast. The Broad Experience you can find on any podcast app and it's at thebroadexperience.com. And there'll be a link to it in the blog that accompanies this episode of Radio Davos. Ashley Milne-Tite of The Broad Experience, thanks so much for joining us to talk through the Jobs Reset Summit. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Please subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or review and join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club. Look for that on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with editing by Clitzia Sala and technical support by Gareth Nolan. Thanks also to Alex Court. We'll be back soon with another Radio Davos, but for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.